This class is going to focus on patient education and management guidelines for adults with urinary diversions. So we're going to talk about critical topics that need to be addressed preoperatively for the patient undergoing urinary diversion. We're going to talk about major management principles, and we're going to discuss in detail the process for obtaining a urine specimen. So pre-op counseling. Urinary diversion is almost always a planned procedure and almost always you will have the opportunity to sit down and talk with the patient preoperatively to make sure they understand what's going to be done, what post-op management will look like, and also to mark their stomacite. So you want to be able to explain to the patient, we've got to remove or bypass your bladder either because of cancer or whatever reason it is that's prompting this surgery, most commonly cancer. Since we're removing or bypassing your bladder, we have to create a new pathway for urine elimination. Here's what the surgeon's going to do. So you're going to use diagrams, either commercially available or you can draw pictures if you're good at that. So you're going to show them they're going to take out a little piece of bowel you have many feet of intestine and they're gonna take out less than one. So it's not gonna cause any problems with bowel elimination. They're gonna take out this little section, they're gonna reconnect the bowel. Bowel function is essentially going to be undisturbed. They're going to connect the kidney tubes to this little piece of bowel. They're gonna sew one end shut. They're gonna bring the other end out to the abdominal surface. You're gonna show them the final picture. Urine is gonna flow from the kidneys, through the kidney tubes, the ureters, into this little section of bowel and out. Now you want to emphasize this is not a replacement bladder at all. This little section of bowel will not provide urine storage. It literally acts as a pipeline, so urine flows through and out almost constantly. And as a result, you have to wear a pouch at all times. So typically, we take a pouch with us. At least one usually will take a couple of different pouches to show the patient what the pouch looks like, to show them how the pouch works. Now, remember that Patients who are having the bladder removed because of a malignancy are frequently at risk for sexual dysfunction. Men are undergo going to undergo cystoprostatectomy. They'll lose ejaculatory function. Women typically undergo cystourethrectomy, which affects the anterior wall of the vagina, and so they may also have alterations in sexual function. That has to be brought up preoperatively because it's part of informed consent. So a good question to ask is, has your surgeon already talked to you about what impact removal of the prostate will have on sexual function? Has he or she already explained to you that you're going to lose ejaculation? say to a woman, has your surgeon said anything about how this surgery might alter your ability to have intercourse? Okay, now we're post-operative, and so we're going to start with assessment, 
and then we're going to move into management. So when I see that patient for the first time postoperatively, um, first of all, assessing stoma viability. So is it red? Is it moist? Does it have good turgor? Do I see any areas that are dark purple, very congested? Do I see a stoma that appears ischemic, that's black and dry? I'm going to look very carefully at the color and clarity of the urine. Now, hematuria is normal during the initial postoperative period. The surgeon's just been in there tying things off, connecting things, and naturally there's going to be some bleeding. But the urine should be transparent. If the urine is bloody but transparent, it means you've got a lot more urine than blood. If the urine is opaque, it means that there's active bleeding, there's a lot of blood in the urine, and it needs to be reported. Now, one thing to tell the patient, you're going to see mucus in your urine. Because remember that we're running the urine through this little section of bowel, and that section of bowel is going to continue to make mucus. So you will see mucus strands in your urine, absolutely normal. The output should be coming through the stents and through the stoma. You should see minimal output through any surgical drains. So all of the urine should be coming through the stoma, through the stents. The volume of output should mimic and mirror the volume of intake. So surgical drains, we've already said they will put drains in place right next to the point at which the ureters are connected to that segment of bowel. The drains are there to drain any fluid to prevent abscess formation. But what you should see from the drains is serosanguinous drainage that gradually diminishes in volume. If you see increasing volume, if the urine looks more, I mean, if the drainage looks more and more like urine, then you have to be concerned that there could be a leak at the anastomosis between the ureters and the ileum, the, between the ureters and that bowel segment. So if you see diminishing output from the stoma and the stents, increasing output through the surgical drain, critical to notify the surgeon, they're gonna to need to do a CT to see what's going on. Now let's talk about stents for just a minute. So if you look at the illustration on top, that's what a ureteral stent typically looks like. It's a very narrow caliber plastic tube. Typically there's a pigtail on one end that holds the stent in place at the level of the renal pelvis. What are stents used for? Why are they in place when the patient comes back from surgery? Well, they're actually fed all the way from the renal pelvis through the ureters, through the conduit, and typically out the stoma. They're there to support the ureteroileal anastomoses till healing is complete, till edema has subsided. So they maintain patency of the ureters while healing is occurring, and they prevent stricture formation. So stents play a very important role in normal healing postoperatively. 
So second bullet point we've already talked about, they're usually constructed with that pigtail loop. It's curled up within the renal pelvis. When the surgeon is ready to remove the stent, he or she puts steady tension on the stent and it straightens out that little pigtail loop and permits removal. The alternative is to secure the stent with absorbable suture, but the vast majority of urologists use stents with the pigtail loop. Now, most of the time, stents are externalized. And what they mean when they say the stents are externalized, you'll see this on operative reports, what they mean is stents are fed through the conduit out the stoma. And so we see them. We see them postoperatively. We see the stents in place. We can monitor them. Some surgeons prefer to leave the stents internalized, which means that the stent extends from the renal pelvis into the conduit, but not out the stoma. So they actually terminate within the conduit itself. If the stents are internalized, the surgeon will have to use an endoscope to remove them. So the vast majority are externalized. It makes removal much easier. Now, managing ureteral stents. Occasionally, you'll see orders to irrigate ureteral stents. That is not standard procedure. Irrigation is not routine. In general, irrigation is contraindicated. And here's why. First of all, why is it not routine? Why is it not necessary? Because the stents don't really have to remain patent. They're just there to keep the door open, to keep the ureteroileal um, anastomosis open. It doesn't matter whether urine flows around the stents or through the stents. It just matters that they're in place they're going to prevent premature closure due to edema. They're going to prevent stricture formation. So their job is to keep the anastomosis patent. They don't need to be patent. Secondly, if I do irrigate the stent, I am propelling potentially infected urine up the stent into the renal pelvis. So most clinicians believe that irrigation should not be done, that we should simply monitor stent placement, make sure that urine is flowing normally, and that it doesn't matter whether it's flowing through or around. But occasionally you'll have a urologist who does want the stents irrigated. If there is an order to irrigate the stents, it's critical to use strict sterile technique very low volume saline, typically three to five milliliters, and very slow installation. Now I want you to look at the illustration on bottom. So what you see, you see two little blue catheters. Those are the ureteral stents. You see they're very narrow caliber. But you also see a red rubber catheter right in the middle. That is known as a conduit stent. It is not always placed. Some urologists never use them, and some urologists do like to take a red rubber catheter, place it into the conduit, suture it into place, just to provide support for urine flow until stomal edema subsides. 
So typically the conduit stent is removed at about three to five days postoperatively when edema starts to diminish. Almost always the conduit stent is removed before the patient goes home. In contrast, the ureteral stents are typically left in place for at least two weeks and are commonly removed when the patient comes back to clinic. Okay, let's walk through um, key points in patient education. With a urinary diversion, just as with fecal diversions, we want patients to know they need to empty the pouch before it's completely full. Typically, we give people the one-third to one-half mark as their target because then they'll still have some response time. I notice my pouch is about halfway full and I start trying to identify a time and place to empty, then I've still got time. They can stand or sit to empty, it doesn't matter, whichever works out best for them. And emptying a urinary pouch, very straightforward. Open the spout, drain it, dry it, close it. In selecting a pouch, the general recommendation is to select a pouch that does include an anti-reflux valve. What is the anti-reflux valve? It is not a valve. And it does not prevent reflux from the stoma into the renal pelvis. What it does is protect the peristomal skin. So it's actually an extra layer of pouch material and it serves to separate the urine in the pouch from the peristomal skin. So when the patient lies down, the weight of the urine in the pouch causes that extra layer of pouch material to flap down against the skin, and that keeps urine off the skin. So it's all about urine protection, protecting, not urine protection, skin protection, protecting the skin against prolonged exposure to urine and resulting maceration. Occasionally, you're going to have a large stoma. If they do a colon conduit, you might start out with an edematous stoma that is too large for many of your urinary pouches. If you do have a stoma that is too large for a urinary pouch, use a post-op pouch. It will always accommodate the stoma. Now, still talking about pouch selection, um, sometimes we begin this discussion preoperatively, many times it's postoperatively, and that is one piece versus two piece. So I might show the patient both. I typically do and say, here's the one piece, you see how it's all welded together. You're going to cut the opening to fit around your stoma. You're going to make sure your skin is dry. You're gonna fit it in place right underneath and pull it open over. Now let me show you the two-piece. So the two-piece you see you have the barrier wafer that sticks to your skin and then the pouch that snaps onto that flange. A lot of people find this two-piece easier right at first because of the stents. So if you look at the illustrations on the top right and middle right, you can see that with the stents protruding, it would be harder to fit those stents through the one-piece pouch. But if you had a two-piece where you size the opening in the wafer, 
then it would be very easy to dry the skin and then feed the stents through the wafer and stick it down. And then you can snap the pouch up. So commonly you will see patients elect the two-piece system for initial care. Long-term, they may elect to stay with the two-piece system or may they may convert over to a one-piece once the stents have been removed. It's not like you cannot use a one-piece, it's just harder. Now, this will just reiterate some points we made in an earlier class about pouching, but a lot of your patients who undergo urinary diversion are older. Many of them have an obese abdomen. So it's not uncommon to have a urinary stoma in a fairly deep crease. In that situation, you're going to need an all-flexible pouch. If you have a situation where you have a stoma in a concave defect in a valley, you'll need a convex pouching system. Now the pouch change procedure, pretty straightforward. You want them to change the pouch once or twice a week. We typically start them out with twice a week and then go from there. Here's a very important point for the patient with a urinary diversion. They need to pick the best time of day to do their pouch change. And the best time of day is the time when they have the least urinary drainage. So a very good thing to recommend is change your pouch first thing in the morning before you eat or drink anything. If that doesn't work for you, then change your pouch at a time at least two hours following a meal. So if you eat breakfast at eight, you're gonna have a lot of urine output between eight and maybe 10.30. So it would be better to wait till about 10.30 and then change your pouch. But the best time is first thing in the morning. The other point that's really important for patients with urinary diversions, remember we're always trying to prevent infection. So you wanna tell the patient, be sure before you change your pouch, wash your hands really well. So wash your hands, then get your supplies ready, then proceed to change your pouch. Beyond that is pretty much standard. You're gonna take off the old pouch with push-pull technique, maybe an adhesive releaser, clean the skin with warm water, treat any skin damage, measure your stoma, cut the opening, and put your pouch in place. One issue that the patient with a urinary diversion has that is not much of an issue for the patient with a fecal diversion is nighttime management. And this is why. Most people with urinary diversion make at least 500 milliliters of urine at night. Many of them will make a liter or more of urine at night because most of them are older and we know that as we age, our production of ADH diminishes. So the older we get, the more of our urine we produce at night. That's why nocturia is normal for people 65 and older. Okay, so you think, okay, they're gonna make at least 500 milliliters of urine at night, probably closer to 1,000. But a urinary pouch only holds 
300 to 360 milliliters. So it's not going to hold enough. It's not going to get them through the night. So then they have two choices. They could get up at night to empty, and that's okay. If they can get up, go to the bathroom, empty their pouch, come back to bed, and go right back to sleep, no problem. But a lot of people will tell you, once I get up, it's really hard for me to go back to sleep. If it's hard for them to go back to sleep, then you want them to think about connecting their pouch to a bedside bag or a bedside jug so that it just drains into the bag, drains into the jug all night, and allows this patient to sleep through the night. One other thing, if they do say, no, I'd rather just get up and empty. That's not hard for me to get up. I can go right back to sleep. Right at first, they're going to need to set an alarm because a full pouch feels very different than a full bladder. And it's going to take a while before they wake to the sensation of a full pouch. If they elect to use a night drainage system, then you have to teach them some little tips for using that night drainage system effectively. So first of all, they have to learn about adapters. So adapters allow you to connect the pouch to the tubing of the night drainage bag or the night drainage jug. And every company makes adapters that work with their pouches and every company sends one to two adapters with each box of pouches. So you have to introduce the patient to the adapter, show the patient how the adapter connects to their pouch and to the drainage system. Also, a lot of patients find it helpful to get um, a Velcro band to hold the drainage tubing straight at night so that it doesn't kink. Some people decide to wear long pajamas and feed the tubing through their pajama leg to try to keep it straight. So just those little um, practical issues that come up when people go home. How do I connect up? How do I keep it straight? How do I keep it from twisting and kinking? So what you want them to do at night, they should wait until they have urine in the pouch. Then they should connect the night drainage bag, night drainage jug using the adapter. Why should they wait until they have urine in the pouch? Because it prevents formation of a vacuum. If they connect when the pouch is empty, they'll get a vacuum that interferes with effective drainage. If they wait until they have urine in the pouch to do the connection, then the urine will immediately flow through the system and create a pattern of forward flow. So they should connect when there's urine in the pouch. In the morning, they will disconnect. They will take the drainage jug or the drainage bag into the bathroom. They will rinse the bag with clear water. And then once a week, they should clean the drainage bag or clean the drainage jug thoroughly, typically with a dilute vinegar solution. So usually one part white vinegar to three or four parts tap water. Let it sit for about 20 minutes, then they can wash it with warm sudsy water, flush through really well, and then store it. Anytime the drainage bag or the drainage jug is not in use, 
the end of the tubing, the adapter, should be covered because you don't want it picking up bacteria. So a very easy way to keep the end of the tubing covered is with a glove. That's what they see us doing in the hospital. They could also use a Ziploc bag or some plastic wrap, but a glove is one of the easiest things for them to use. What about dietary and fluid modifications? Well, really no dietary restrictions. They do need to know that fish and asparagus might increase urinary odor, so they need to evaluate and see if that's an issue for them. If so, they might want to limit their intake of asparagus and fish to the day they're going to change their pouch anyway. We start talking to them before surgery and we keep talking the whole way through the post-op period about the importance of adequate fluid intake. That they need at least two liters a day. That at least half of that should be water-based that it's important to drink fluids throughout the day to constantly flush the system, flush bacteria out. And I've had a number of my patients, when I tell them how important it is to drink plenty of fluid and to keep their urine very dilute, they're like, you know what's really great to keep my urine dilute? Beer. And I'm like, yes, it really will do that. But when you drink beer, it tends to dehydrate you. So it's okay to drink beer, but it doesn't count. It doesn't count in your two quarts. So when you, if you drink a beer, then drink a glass of water before you drink the second beer. So yes, you can have it, but it doesn't count. Strategies to minimize urine odor, keeping the urine um, dilute is strategy number one. Now, most of the time when the urine is dilute, it is also acidic, and we know that acidic urine has less odor. In general, acidic urine is desirable because it's better for the skin, better for the nose, and hostile to bacterial growth. Occasionally, you want to keep the urine alkaline, primarily in people who have uric acid stones, but that's a very small percentage. So your default position is drink plenty of fluids, keep the urine acidic. You want to make sure they use good hygiene and caring for their urostomy. So wash their hands when they're changing their pouch um, and be meticulous. And finally, they need to know that there are medications that will increase odor, primarily antibiotics and vitamins. Now, the last thing that I'm going to mention is guidelines for obtaining urine specimens from individuals with urinary diversions. Routinely, people are going to ask them for a urinalysis because they're screening for blood, they're screening for protein, they're screening for glucose, all kinds of things we use a urinalysis to screen for. And if you need a urinalysis, all you need to do, put a clean pouch on, wait for 15 or 20 minutes till you get enough urine in the pouch, then drain it out and use your dipstick. So urinalysis easily obtained nothing complex. Just make sure it comes from a clean pouch. In some centers, if the um, urinary diversion was done as a result of bladder cancer, they'll do urine cytology every six months to a year because tumors set, um, shed cancer cells and you can pick them up in the urine. 
If they want a urine for cytology, again, you can just apply a clean pouch. Wait till you have enough urine in that clean pouch. Drain it into your cup and mix it with the formalin solution. You could also catheterize them, but that's much more complex. It's just as effective to get a clean specimen from a clean pouch. Very occasionally, they'll ask you to do a catheterization for conduit residual. And what they want to do, they want to make sure that the conduit's draining effectively, that you don't have a lot of urine trapped in the conduit because of stomal stenosis or whatever. So if they do ask you to catheterize the conduit for a residual, you can either wait till you see urine coming out of the stoma and then do your catheterization, or you can just catheterize them because the bottom line is they should never have more than five to 10 milliliters sitting in the conduit. And if they do, that represents some problem with drainage that needs further workup. The only time that you need to use a use sterile technique to obtain a urine specimen is if you're obtaining a urine specimen for culture and sensitivity. If you suspect a urinary tract infection, you want a sterile specimen so you can figure out what's causing the infection and what it's sensitive to. In that case, you're going to take off the pouch, you're gonna put on sterile gloves, have a sterile tray set up, you're gonna prep the peristomal skin and the stoma, wipe off the excess prep, and then pass your catheter in to get your specimen. Or you can set up your sterile tray, take off the old pouch, put on your sterile gloves, prep the stoma and peristomal skin, wipe off the excess, and then hold your sterile cup right underneath the stoma so that the urine can drip into it. Either approach is acceptable when you need to get a sterile specimen. And we'll talk more about that later. So in managing the patient with an ileal conduit or some other ureteroileal conduit, you start preoperatively by explaining what's going to be done, why, emphasizing the fact that the conduit does not provide urinary storage and that they'll be wearing a pouch at all times, and addressing any anticipated change in sexual function. Postoperatively, your assessment should focus on stoma viability, the characteristics and volume of output, and is it coming from the stoma and the stents, or do you have abnormally high volumes of output through the surgical drain. You're gonna select the pouch based on stoma characteristics, peristomal contours, and patient preference. Always a urinary pouch, always an anti-reflux valve. Typically a two-piece during the early post-op period because it makes it so much easier to pouch around stents. But if the stoma is in a deep crease, you're going to have to go one piece all flexible. If the stoma is in a concave valley, you're going to need convexity. You're going to teach the patient the basics in self-care, when and how to empty, when and how to change the pouch. There are options for nighttime management. 
and strategies for keeping their night drainage system clean. Stents, primarily we monitor stents. We assure adequate volume of output through the stents and the stoma. We explain the purpose of the stents to the patient. We don't routinely irrigate. We explain that the stents will be removed typically at the first clinic visit post-discharge. We talk to the patient about the importance of adequate fluid intake, fluid intake throughout the day to keep the system flushed. If we had to get a urine specimen from a patient with a urinary diversion, we wash our hands, put on gloves, change the pouch. So we make sure we have a clean pouch and then we can collect urine from the clean pouch for urinalysis, for cytology. The only time we need to use sterile technique in a sterile cup is if we're getting a culture insensitivity. Okay, thank you very much. We'll talk more about specimens in our next class.